It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. What's the one thing all great teams have in common? Great coaching. Try to suck up to me, Evelyn. I'm Gordon Bombay, the new hockey coach. All right, let's go! Learn me! Come on! We're Team USA, gathered from all across America. And we're going to stick together. You know why? Because we are ducks, and ducks fly together. It's the Quack Attack Podcast. Hey, everybody. I move that the scholarships be reinstated. I'm Mike. That's Tommy. What's up, everyone? That's Kevin. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Quack Attack Podcast, the definitive Mighty Ducks podcast. I'm not going to waste any time here because we have on the line director and director of D3, Rob Lieberman. Rob, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. So I want to go back in the day here. So I was looking into your background a little bit. and uh, You grew up in Buffalo, New York. Decide around 11, 12, you want to be a Hollywood director. You fall in love with movies. But it, I heard you say on a different podcast, it seems so far out of the realm of even possibility for you. At what point did becoming a director even seem sort of possible for you? It still doesn't seem possible. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, uh, I mean, I, I, I seriously, um, uh, I grew up uh, in a very uh, lower middle class, right on the poverty line home in uh, Buffalo and I, I did my homework because we only had two bedrooms and a dining room and a living room. I did my homework. I, I, I fixed up a coal bin. That's how far back it goes. I used to have, it had been converted to gas, but they still had coal bins in the basements of these houses. And I, I refurbished it into a little office <laughs> and that's where I did my homework. And I was sitting there and I was thinking like, so what is it that you really want to do? Cause Everybody was telling me to be either an engineer or a dentist or, I mean, it was like, and, and none of these things interested me even a little bit. And I thought, what do you really like? And I said, well, I love movies. And what would be like the biggest dream of your life it would be to direct movies. And I thought, you know what? That's so impossible that I think it's worthwhile pursuing. <laughs> because if you aim for the highest place you can aim, if you fall short of it, you fall so much further ahead than if you aimed further down that scale. Yeah. So when I went out to California, I had never even met anybody who'd ever been to California. I mean, that's how distant I was. I mean, it was just like, it was like a cold call. And, um, I first, I wrote out 700 letters to producers and directors and studios and things when I was in college at the university of Buffalo and then I went to New York on a bunch of interviews, and then I went out to California. When I got to California for the first time, I went, this is where I have to be. Because in New York, you can't find the film industry. Everything looks like the diamond industry, looks like the clothing industry, looks like the film industry, looks like every industry looks the same in Manhattan. But when you get to California, you drive by 20th Century Fox or Universal, that's the film business. Uh-huh. And that was like, that was the holy grail. And uh, I realized I had to be out here and I had to go and, and that's what I wanted to do. And uh, so it, through a long series of very windy paths, 
uh, I met people and got little jobs and became an assistant editor in television commercials, then an editor of television commercials, then a director of television commercials, then a director of after-school specials, then a director of movies of the week. I mean, it's, it, you know, it took me over. I directed, I got out here when I was 21 and I directed my first feature when I was 32. <laughs> so it was 11 years of kind of wending around in the wilderness uh, trying to build a career and a reputation. And finally, I got my break, which was a movie called Table for Five. And I was honored to direct the great John Voight. And he had just won the Academy Award for Coming Home. I had never directed a movie before. And I was one of 30 candidates for this job. And John Voight said something to me that to this day I remember and I'm honored by. He said, uh, you know what? I met another guy like you and I passed on him. <laughs> And I'm not going to make that same mistake twice. And that other guy was Steven Spielberg. Oh, wow. wow. That's crazy. You know, so, yeah. So he saw a lot of potential in me, and I made I made that movie. It's I, I'm still very proud of it, Table for Five, but it didn't do much at the box office, so it kind of stalled my feature career for a, a while. And... Um, uh, and then, you know, I, I opened my own commercial company and then started doing television pilots, 20 years of television pilots. Uh, I have like the second highest uh, uh, percentage of uh, pilot to series ratio in the history of television. And, um, you know, it's just, it's something I loved. You know, you got to put your 10,000 hours in. I did that by skipping school. Um, (laughs) So did Steven Spielberg, by the way. (laughs) His mother allowed him to skip school to make little films. And things. Wow. So, um, you know, I finally got out here and I, I made a name in commercials and that gave me the ability to form my own company. And, and um, uh, it's a lot of work. I mean, I, I'm still doing it. You know, mm-hmm. I just finished a package of Toyota RAV4 commercials and... Um, and I'm I'm proud to be part of the business, and I'm proud of my career. And I got I have two sons, uh, Nick and Joe, and they are uh, they are following in their father's footsteps. The older one graduated from Columbia Cum Laude last year, and he's out directing. And the other one's going into a senior year at Northwestern. Wow, a couple of good journalism schools there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just got the tuition bill, so they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty good schools. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned you kind of got your start in commercials, still doing commercial now. Any commercials that sort of ascended into like the pop culture, like zeitgeist? Any commercials that like we would know just by like the mention of it? Well, uh, you might. Um, I've always avoided, when I was a commercial director, people say, oh, which one should you direct? And I always avoided answering that question because inevitably it'd be answered with, um, no, I don't know that one. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> a good point. So, so but uh, you guys are uh, uh, from a different generation. And so these, the commercials that did make its did make their way into the pop culture, uh, would have pr- pr- preceded you by a number of years. Uh-huh. But I'll tell you what they are anyways. And you may or may not know what they are. The one that you might be aware of is one for Oreo cookies with two little brothers, the younger brother with a sippy cup, um, and the older brother's dipping his cookie into milk, and the other brother can't get the, and these mm-hmm. are little boys, I mean, like maybe five and two, 
uh, and they can't. Uh, the, the one with the sippy cup uh, can't dip his can't get his cookie into the sippy cup. Yeah. So at the end of the commercial, he, he puts the cookie down and he pours the milk onto the cookie and he laughs at his brother. I think I, I think I remember um, that one. Yeah, I've definitely seen that one. Yeah, and and that one became so popular that I've directed it in about six different languages and have been shipped around the world by <laughs> by uh, uh, Kraft Oreo cookies to do it. I've done I've done it in Chinese, in Norwegian, in French, uh, in Arabic. Wow. Uh, and the same damn commercial. Now <laughs> I just happened to have lucked out the first commercial I did. I just happened to luck out luck out and find the two cutest real brothers. <laughs> so they had a natural natural relationship, you know, a very uh, uh, real relationship with each other, and they just happened to. That was an improv that they did. I mean, I encouraged them to do it by gluing the sippy cup closed. Um, and so, so when the kid tried to open the sippy cup, it was <laughs> rock solid closed. Um, but uh, it was a, one of those magical moments. Now Kraft comes back to me and says, can you do that magical moment like with people that you don't even speak their language? <laughs> language? I mean, it's like, yeah, I'll try. And I, I did. I did. You can go on YouTube and find it in every language in, under the sun. And um, and I had interpreters and I knew how to, I did many, many commercials with little children. So I knew how to talk to, at least manipulate, I hate to say the, that word, but yeah, manipulate kids into getting performances out of them. And But I always tried, treated them with dignity and uh, um, never yell at children, always talk to them at eye height, give them a gift at the end of every show. But anyways, that's one commercial. The other commercial that was my most, oh, I, I, I came in third in the Super Bowl once, um, with a, uh, McDonald's commercial with two Schlemiel's that go to the Super Bowl and they end up getting, uh, they go, it starts out with, with two guys walking up to the wicket. The Super Bowl was being held at Seymour uh, Robbie Stadium in Miami, mm-hmm. and they walk up to the wicket and they say two on the fifty, <laughs> and you cut to a black woman behind the the uh, wicket and she just starts laughing hysterically. I mean, it's infectious. Her laugh was inf- I hired her because she had this infectious laugh, and so you cut back to two Schlemiel's and they go forty, <laughs> and she just keeps laughing. They go thirty. And then she keeps laughing, and they're walking away, and the one of them says, I told you we couldn't get tickets the day of the game. <laughs> so, well, let's just sit down here and have some McDonald's. So they sit down, they eat their McDonald's, and all of a sudden they say, you guys looking for tickets? And you cut up, and it's Larry Bird and uh, Michael Jordan. Wow. And he says, you could have ours, and they end up with their tickets. Now, the rest of the whole commercial is them trying to find where these seats are. It turns <laughs> out they're on the actual player bench. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, so that was another one. And the third one that was very famous was uh, one called The New Kid for McDonald's, which was an old man going back to work at McDonald's. Uh, quick question before we get into ducks. I've always kind of wondered, seeing food commercials and food in, in film and stuff, how much are the actors eating? And are they like, is it fake food? Because I, I remember seeing some kind of famous like bit about an ice like a girl like licking an ice cream cone, but it was actually like mashed potatoes because she couldn't do ice cream because it would melt in the lights or something. How much are these actors actually eating? And is it, you know, like kind of a real dilemma for some of these things? Um, legally they are required and they all eat the real food all the time. I've never, I've never fed anything to anybody in any commercial 
and I know you're not from the law, but I'm just, <laughs> so this is a legal disclaimer. This is just a sting operation, never, actually. They always eat the pro- they always eat the product. They always eat every McDonald's commercial. They're eating exactly what you think they're eating, and in every commercial I've ever done, every pizza commercial, every fr- uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken commercial, they're always eating exactly what you think they're eating. Um, it's, it's, uh, I've never run into any substitutes for. Uh, I mean, I did have one situation where we were doing. Uh, you know, when I do a little kid commercial and you're going to do, let's say, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and you, 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 you do say, uh, do you like chicken? Well, after this particular interview, I in future interviews, I actually had them eat it in front of me. Because <laughs> this kid said, yeah, I like chicken. And we get to the set to do this Kentucky Fried Chicken commercial, and the kid won't eat it. And I said, <laughs> well, I went to the mother. I went, your child said that he ate chicken. She said, yeah, boiled. Boiled. <laughs> <laughs> Boiled, boiled chicken. Okay, great. We'll boil these these chicken wings for you. <laughs> <laughs> going going back to the the Oreo commercial real quick. Uh, do you have any idea what those two brothers are up to these days? Uh, I have no idea. I have no idea. But that they, they've got to be like in their thirties or something now. <laughs> That's great. My, Michael, track them down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll try to find him. <laughs> so let's get into it then. From there, how do you end up directing D3? Okay, so uh, so I directed Table for Five, and mm-hmm. Table for Five didn't do anything at the box office. So I was kind of went back to doing commercials for a while. And then I got myself a manager, and um, the manager had a good relationship out at Disney and said, I have this guy. And uh, I went out and I interviewed out at Disney, and they asked me, I watched the first two. And I'm a hockey freak, by the way, just for the record. I mean, I'm just, I never miss a Kings game. Although when I'm in Toronto, I never miss a Maple Leafs game. And when I'm in uh, Vancouver, I never miss a Canucks game. And when I'm in Montreal, (laughs) I never miss a Habs game. So um, uh, I told him, you know, I love hockey and I know hockey inside and out. I really understand the game and so on and so forth. And I, I, I pitched them that I said to them, Look, you've got a successful franchise here. You're asking me to do the third. I'm not going to come in and reinvent the wheel here. This is not the time to bring in a guy to kind of revamp the entire franchise. I said, I would just take your franchise and paint it on the outside of a balloon and then just inflate the balloon a little bit more. (laughs) And they liked that whole metaphor and they hired me. And uh, Michael Eisner, who was then running the studio, even though it wasn't the highest grossing of the three movies, he thought it was the best of the three movies, and I was very proud of that. And uh, of, of all three movies, if you go back and look at it, and frankly, of all hockey movies, if you go back and look at all of that, you'll find that D3 The Mighty Ducks is the only one which actually thought out every single hockey play. So it wasn't just catch as catch can. Yeah. It was actual hockey plays, and you could follow the puck, who has it, what the play is, who's going in on the goalie, what the, you know, I mean, I was stickler for laying on that. I, I subsequently did another hockey movie up in Canada called Breakaway, mm-hmm. which is kind of the Indo-Canadian version. It's kind of the Bollywood version of Mighty Ducks. Okay. <laughs> instead of instead of the Mighty Ducks, they're the Speedy Sings. They're a <laughs> bunch of uh, Sikh boys who want to play hockey, but they have to wear their turbans. And the league wants them to wear helmets, but they got to wear turbans. So it's, uh, but it, it is, for, and I was a stickler in that just as well. I did exactly the same thing. I, uh, 
I laid out every play with a with a a coach, with a professional hockey coach of, mm-hmm. of an NHL team, and we laid out the plays so that I could replicate them over and over again from different angles. And uh, but I hate sports films where you can't follow the sport. Yeah. You know, it's like on any Sunday, which is Oliver Stone, who I have great respect for, but you, there's no sport there. It's like hike, a bunch of cuts, and someone gets tackled. You don't know what's, <laughs> where anyone's running or what they're doing. But I've done I've done football films and did the exact same thing with football films. Mm-hmm. The thing called uh, Second String for um, TNT. And I've laid out every single play so you could follow every play. It's a running play. It's a pass play. You know, everybody knows where they're supposed to be. And so, and you have to do that in film because you got to do it over and over again from many different angles. And you want it to be the same play every time. So I, 60 plays I laid out. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, so was there at any point when you're filming D3 that anybody, be it producer, actors, anything came up and were like, Hey, what are we going to do? You know, this, you know, uh, that you just shot down. You're like, no, that wouldn't actually happen in a game. That wouldn't actually happen in hockey. Um, I can't remember that. I can't remember distinctly that that ever happened because besides keeping the hockey legitimate, we also, it's a kid's film. So there are plays that are absolutely insanely ridiculous, right? I mean, it's just <laughs> yeah. stuff, stuff that just couldn't happen even in the physical world. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's completely fantasy stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, you're just jumping over things and spinning around. And I mean, just, there's just things you can't, you can't do. There was one, there was one play where I think I remember uh, where one of the players, I think Mike, he, he kind of flips the puck on his stick as he skates the entire length of the ice. <laughs> so the puck never touches the ice. He's just flipping it on his stick. I mean, forget about it. That doesn't happen, but in a kid's movie. But uh, uh, so it wasn't, so it, I'm not actually saying that I'm such a stickler to the rules of hockey that I wouldn't break them. I'm just saying that when I portray a sport, I want the audience to be able to follow it. Mm-hmm. So you have, I don't know, with the other team, probably like 30 kids, you have ice, you have this whole crowd. How difficult it, how difficult was it just to shoot all those hockey scenes and uh, kind of make everything look right? It was amazingly difficult. First of all, we shot it in Minnesota, which is where it takes place, mm-hmm. but we shot it in the middle of summer. <laughs> so it was like, like 90 degrees and 89 to 95% humidity outside, right? And so we would, and then you'd go in and spend the day in a cool down hockey rink. So you had to like kind of Canada goose up to get in there, right? I mean, I was wearing gloves and boots and long johns and, you know, to stand on the ice all day long, you, right? But when, but when every time you want to take a break, you want to go to your motor home, the minute you open that door, you get hit with a wall of humid, hot humidity <laughs> and you're standing there in like a Canada goose coat, you know, it's like. So it, it was um, it, it was challenging. It was challenging, but you know, it wasn't overwhelming in any way. I mean, I, I, I boarded it all. We, you know, for action, any kind of action, you got to storyboard. Storyboard. Mm-hmm. We came up with the, uh, the the lawnmower cam, which which I invented, which was a camera that sat on a plate that had a handle. So imagine pushing a lawnmower, uh-huh. and then. So the camera was down right on the level of the puck on the ice. 
And the guy who was filming it was pushing a lawnmower or pulling this lawnmower. And he was watching the camera through virtual glasses, virtual reality glasses. Wow. And this, that was done way back in 96, somewhere in 96 or 97, I think. Yeah. And so this was all new technology. And the, so he could watch that camera that was down around his foot level. And he, sca- he was on skates, and he would skate around with this camera, and he could see what the camera was seeing by wearing these virtual reality glasses. Hmm. Did not even realize that. So you get there, and obviously you have a script and whatnot. Uh, how much input do you have, or, or do you change it at all? And how Are you able to change it? I, I'm out of the Hollywood scene, so I don't exactly know how that whole dynamic works. Well, it was written by a guy named Stephen Brill, and it was, you know, he, he, he wrote the third one, so it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not for me to come in. But I, I, of course, uh, from a director's point of view, you could have a lot of input. I, I didn't do any writing on it, but I could say to Stephen, you know, I think that we should do this at this moment, or there should be that moment, or this moment, or the other moment. There's a moment in there where the coach is skating around with his daughter in a wheelchair to show mm-hmm. the audience that he has a lot of heart, even though he's a hard nose with the kids he seems like a drill instructor initially and then you realize he's kind of angry in his own life because he lost his wife and he's got a little girl in a wheelchair and he takes her out so it softens him it makes him acceptable and that was something we kind of came up with together and um uh see in feature films the the director is really the auteur Uh so the director really has a lot to say in how a film is made. Some directors more than others, obviously guys like uh, Neneri too, or uh, Steven Spielberg or Jim Cameron or whoever, uh, have a lot more, to, or France for a couple of, whatever, have a lot more to say than maybe I would. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that feature film is a director's medium ostensibly, although a lot of directors in this day and age were writers or are writers. So the auteur would be a writer-director, and there's a lot of those now, um, in the, mostly in the independent business and in the specialized art business, because the studios are just making Transformer 12 and 14 and 19. And um, uh, so I had a lot, I had a, but tele- television is a writer's medium. You just service the writers in that. You have very little to say about what goes on there. Um, but on Mighty Ducks, I felt like a full partner in it. And, um, uh, I, I created the scenes. I mean, I created all the visuals. Uh, I mean, well, here's a little anecdote you might like. It's, uh, uh, I looked at the first two and if you're shooting in a hockey arena, you've never seen a hockey arena with windows. They just don't have windows. They, no one puts windows in a ice skating arena. Um, but because my whole film took place in a hockey arena, how do I let the audience know what time of day it is? It's all going to look the same. It's going morning is going to look like afternoon is going to look like night. It's mm-hmm. all going to look the same. You're never going to feel like any passage of time. So I pitched to the producers, you got to have windows. I got to know. I got to have, first of all, it'll make it more beautiful if I have the sun streaking in at some point with sun shafts and other times it's dark in the morning and it's lighter in the afternoon and, I mean, so we scouted every hockey rink within a hundred miles of Minneapolis and couldn't find one that had windows in it. And so 
we found one that allowed us to cut windows into it. And we had <laughs> guys go and with saws cut through cinder block and install windows along one whole side of that arena. And the, 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 and the owners of the arena were so pleased with it, they, they just let them stand. They liked them. <laughs> they liked having the windows there. And then there's like one end of the one end of that skating rink. It looks like there's a big window there, but that's just a light box. There were dressing rooms behind that, a hallway. But I need I needed to make it. I hated the top light. I mean, this is very technical, but um, the the other two films were lit like comedies. Everything was top light, and a top light is not attractive light for photography. Backlight is the most attractive light for bot photography. Mm -hmm. And so I needed some way to generate something other than the lights that were in the ceiling of the, of the, uh, and, and, uh, uh, the arena. And so I, they cut the windows in and I had my light shafts. <laughs> uh, going back to something you said earlier where you mentioned, you know, working with kids in commercials, you always want to be, you know, overly nice and everything. Um, so here in Z3, you're working with, I guess, teenagers kind of on the, on the cusp of adulthood and they're in its sequels so they've already kind of established themselves somewhat or think they've established themselves was it difficult working with teenagers and like how do you kind of get the best out of them especially if you know they're used to a different director or they're you know they're like oh i've done this movie before it's the exact same thing i had absolutely not one look of trouble with these these guys are wow. all professionals they were all professionals they knew their characters they came prepared they knew their lines and i'm not saying this because i don't know these kids too much we had a reunion a couple of years ago and I, I you know i i ran into them all grown up but the uh but uh honestly i couldn't have asked for a nicer bunch of great human beings to work with I mean, Keenan Thompson, come on, man. I mean, yeah. I mean, look what, what, I mean, Josh Jackson, look at these guys. I mean, they, they, a lot of them went on to have really good careers and everything. I mean, these were wonderfully well disciplined. I had not any issues with them whatsoever. They did what I asked them to do. They were respectful. Uh, and I was a pretty young guy at the time. They were totally respectful. They, they knew I loved them. They knew I was there to take care of them. I didn't push them around. I, I, I'm not one of those kind of directors. I don't direct by intimidation and by condescending, being condescending. I'm not one of those guys. So I, 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 tr I, I believe that actors are really, all actors are um, dealing with a control, controlled psychoses. Uh, you know, it's people pretending to be somebody else. The more they believe they're that somebody else, the crazier they are, but the better actors they are. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So, I mean, there are some guys like Jim Carrey. When he does a movie, he becomes that guy. And you can, even when he goes to lunch and goes to the bathroom, whatever he does, he's that guy. So he's nuts. <laughs> but he delivers a great performance. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's, it, you have to, you have to cod, coddle. Okay. Here's, here's what I, what I, when I teach, I say, tell students this, you know, we were all born with the ability to make pretend mm -hmm. everybody. I, when I was a kid, I could make pretend when you were kids, you could make pretend you thought you were in a spacecraft. You thought you were fighting medieval warriors, whatever you were doing, you could make pretend and you did it without any self-consciousness. When you were five years old, you could be a doctor, you could be a fireman, you could be whatever you want. 
Okay. But as you get older, the society makes you self-conscious of that. And you become aware that people are going to make, maybe will make fun of you if you make pretend that you're something you're not. And so the, the good actors have, have nurtured that child in them and given themselves permission to be able to make pretend even in their fifties and sixties and seventies, whatever, they can still make pretend. And that's a facility that I revere because I started out to be an actor and realized I wasn't good enough. So I love actors. I love them so much that I married a bunch of them and I'm still paying them off. And <laughs> <laughs> That was, uh, I mean, before that last one, that was probably the deepest thing anybody's ever said in our podcast. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Um, going back, uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and assume that you grew up playing hockey, at least in some form or fashion. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't learn how to skate until I did D3, the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> well, there you I go. realized I was actually wa- directing, walking across the ice with cleats on my feet going, <laughs> God, this is going to be a long shoot if I've got to do this. <laughs> it takes me forever to walk from one end of the ice to the other end of the ice. I said, so after the shoot every night I would take skating lessons till I was able to, I couldn't stop. So I would have to skate right into the boards and just stop myself that way. But at least I could skate the length of the ice and be down the other end in no time flat. I, I was going to ask which duck you uh, would compare yourself to hockey skill wise, but I guess I, I have to, I have to audible a little bit. Uh, who would you compare yourself to kind of personality wise uh, when you were that age? Oh, probably a Charlie, I would think. I, I, I was kind of Charlie. You know, I, 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 yeah, I mean, that, that, that's who I would identify with. But I, I, I loved all of those guys. I loved them all. I thought they were wonderful. They did a great job. I'm very proud of the film. I think it's a really good kids' film. I think it's a good adult film. I think it's a good hockey film. We agree. <laughs> yeah. It's actually my favorite. Of the three, um, and thank you. I, I, I'm 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 in the minority, the the vast minority there. I think, um, but uh, I I don't know. There's something about it that's always stuck with me, um, and I don't know. I just I just really loved it. So uh, it's it's been a treat having you on for sure. Because uh, oh, thanks, thanks. Yeah. These these guys might not agree with me, but D three is definitely my favorite. It's well, definitely- I was probably you're probably more into ants. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's definitely grown on me as I got older, I think. I think just appreciating a little more, like being a little more mature to see kind of everything that went into it. Uh, But go ahead, Rob. We do this thing called the quack question where we ask fans to send in their questions for you. We try to answer them on the air. So we asked for questions for you. And uh, Kevin has the quack question for you here. Okay. Uh, Okay. Uh, it was tough. We, we had quite a, quite a bit of, uh, of, of, uh, great questions. Um, I'm going to go with, uh, Brian, who's at Bberg 19 on Twitter. Um, and his question is, how did the kids on the ducks feel about Emilio Estevez having such a reduced role in D3? Did they take it as him abandoning them? Oh, not at all. These, these are all professional actors and, 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 and Emilio had actually only signed on for a couple. And uh, he, they had to come up with a plot to get a, a third idea that wouldn't include him. But because he's so much part of the franchise, 
he they made a deal with him that he would come in and bookend. He would he would he only actually spent just a couple of days out of weeks and weeks that we were shooting it with us. And we did the the opening where he tells Charlie he's not going to be with them and he's going to turn him over to the coach. And he did the ending where he comes in and defends them to the school board. And so those were and then walks away at the end of the big game. So th- those are the three big his three big moments. The studio kn- knew they needed Emilio's uh, name on the one sheet to draw the fans mm-hmm. uh, and um, and he agreed to do it. I think the deal they made is they were going to finance one of his one of his little independent movies or something like that. But um, he, 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 he ended up being one of my uh, close social personal friends. When he was with Paul Abdul, we were we were good. We were really good friends. And um, uh, uh, no, the answer is no. The kids, the kids love Milio. Uh, they respected him, and it's a job. It's a job. It, it wasn't a, a personal emotional issue. It was a when they were going to work, and this guy was going to work, and he was hired to work for three days, and I was hired to work for six weeks or whatever it was. You know, that's the way it is. So, real quick, because we're running out of time. I heard you say on a, a different podcast that you named the school Eden Hall, so it's spelled A on their uh, varsity jackets or whatever, and just that initials. What else did you sort of sneak in there that people might not have realized? Hmm. What else did I sneak in? I, I, I honestly I can't remember anything offhand, but okay. uh, but it was it was it was the E H was Eden Hall because there was and there is a, a suburb I was going through the map of Minneapolis and I found this area called Eden Hall and I went the initials will be not a it's eh. <laughs> eh. <laughs> I like it <laughs> I like it and, and then one more but offhand I can't think of anything else that I that I kind of stuck in I'm sure there's stuff because I always do that. Let me think. I'm trying. I put myself in a lot of these movies, so. Um, <laughs> but I don't think I, I don't think I put myself in that one. I don't think. No, I didn't. I didn't put myself in that one. Okay, so Michael Eisner comes out, tells you it's his favorite movie of the bunch. Uh, you're a hockey guy. You seem to enjoy shooting hockey movies. Was there any talk about a D4? Is there any talk about a D4 still? No. No, I think they put that thing. They put that to bed. You know, there was a very contentious uh, thing between Stephen Brill, who created the Mighty Ducks. He was the writer. He, mm-hmm. he went to Disney with a script called The Mighty Ducks. Mm-hmm. He created the words The Mighty Ducks, and he wrote a screenplay called The Mighty Ducks, which uh, Disney optioned and then made into a movie, which became very popular. Then Disney decided to go and buy themselves an NHL franchise. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it turns out that the Anaheim Ducks, which were re- originally called the Mighty Ducks, um, are the at one time at that time was the number one uh, highest grossing uh, franchise for paraphernalia. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. they, they of the entire league, Mighty Ducks hats, shirts, lunchboxes, blah, blah, blah. Were that made the most money and made them a damn fortune, and and Stephen Brill sued Disney for his portion of it, and I think he eventually won. Oh wow! Mm. I didn't know. So he made himself a nice piece of change off of that, but they were trying to rip him off. <laughs> yeah, uh, a little bit of bad blood there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, just a touch. For sure. Awesome. Well, Rob, it went on for twenty years. By the way, that 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 legal battle went on for like twenty years. Wow. Dang! I'm gonna have to 
do some research here, see what went yeah. on. We've had Steve on, uh, and so we'll have to touch base with him again. <laughs> yeah, let's see what he has to say about that. Oh, 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 you had Brill on? Yeah, yeah, we had Brill. We didn't talk about the lawsuit. Oh, he's great. He's yeah, he's a super great guy. Yeah, he's yeah, he was guy. definitely fun. He was definitely fun. This was fun, Rob. Appreciate it. Uh, anything? My pleasure. Coming up outside of your Rav Four commercials that we should be looking out for that you've done. No, I mean I, I'm I'm nominated right now for uh, a DGC award for best dramatic television director for a episode of The Expanse, which I do for sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Uh, science fiction show um, and then the other thing is uh, Breakaway which didn't really have a big release in the states it was really a big film in Canada which is where I do a lot of work um, I'm busy uh, trying to prepare to do the sequel to that nice. Breakaway 2 another hockey movie <laughs> nice nice episode for the expanse if people want to see is 106 so uh, yeah, yeah that's the one that was nominated you're right Rock bottom. Appreciate you coming on, Rob. This was a lot of fun. Uh, for us, thequacktech.com. I had a blast too, yeah. At Quacktech, oh, sorry. At Quacktechpod on Twitter, facebook.com slash Quacktechpod. I can't talk right now. Go to iTunes, give us five stars. Tell us your favorite commercial that Rob's ever directed. You're going to have to do some research on that one. And remember, ducks fly together. Ducks fly together. Quack, quack.